Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. Welcome, everyone, to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. This is Lori LeBay, your host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks resource website, blog, radio, and the Shifting Your Dementia Care Culture webinar series. I'm so glad you're here to join us today. I don't know what it's like where you guys are, but in Minnesota, we are breaking records right and left with this heat. So i got to say, I'm kind of enjoying my air conditioning today. Here at Alzheimer's Speaks, we believe in giving voice to those afflicted with memory loss and their care partners, empowering them to live purpose-filled lives. Our goal is to raise awareness, give hope, and share the real, everyday life stories of living with dementia. Our hope is to teach people how to live with the disease, not as the disease. Now, our channel expert who has early onset Alzheimer's disease is Rick Phelps, and I'm never quite sure if Rick's going to be able to join us or not, But if he does, I will definitely pull him into the conversation. Rick is the founder of Memory People on Facebook, which is a a closed group, and it's a wonderful support group where you can chat with people around the world basically 24-7. If you haven't checked it out, just go to Facebook and in the search bar, put in Memory People and ask to join. Um, I highly encourage you to do that. It's it's one of many support groups out there um, that can help Ease, ease this process. The other thing I want to let people know is that here at Alzheimer's Speaks, we really believe that collaboratively we can shift our care culture from crisis to comfort by sharing our knowledge, our insights, and our passions, and we really encourage you to join us. So if you have a question or a comment and you've signed in um, on the Internet using Facebook, you can go ahead and talk to us via the chat box, or you can call in live, and that number is 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757. And all you have to do is press 1, and you'll get into my queue or my waiting room, and as soon as there's a break in the conversation, I will pull you in. Today I'm very excited um, to have with us Debbie Richmond. Um, she is an absolutely incredible woman that I met when I went to go hear uh, her speak. And I thought I have to have her on the show because she is so filled with this wonderful, wonderful knowledge. Debbie is the Associate Program Director for Education and Outreach with the Alzheimer's Association for both Minnesota and North Dakota. She has her Bachelor of Science degree from the University of Wisconsin, and she is a certified activity consultant with the National with uh, National Certification Council of Activity Professionals, 
and also the essential um, all um, advanced through the Alzheimer's Association, which is a, a newer program that I'm sure she'll share with us. Her professional career has focused on senior services in education and training for staff, family members, and community members, and she has presented at national, state, and local levels for a variety of organizations. Um, so she just, like I said, she's just a wealth of information. She's received the Care Provider Employee of the Year Award in 1994 and the Alzheimer's Association Special Friend Award in 1998. She has provided independent consulting and training in the areas of challenging behaviors in memory care program development as well as training for direct care staff in long-term facilities on how to lead therapeutic activities to enhance the quality of life. She's also an adjunct um, faculty at the Ridgewater College in Hudson, Minnesota, and works as a project consultant for Healthcare um, Interactive, Inc. So she's currently with the Alzheimer's Association here in Minnesota, and I'm just thrilled to have her um, with our Alzheimer's Association here in Minnesota. So welcome, Debbie. How are you doing today? I'm trying to stay cool as well. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing. I'm doing wonderful. I'm very excited to have you on the show. Um, like I said, when I heard you talk and and just the way that you describe things, um, you just make it so easy for people to understand how to really engage with someone with with dementia. And so I thought what we would do is um, first just have you share with us, um, it, do you have a personal tie to dementia, a family member or friend, or how did you kind of get into this line of work? If you can give us some background, that's always helpful for our audience. Okay. Um, I actually got into this line of work kind of by accident, um, which I have found over the years is not an uncommon story. Um, my mom, uh, for over 20 years, was a nurse in a long-term care facility, and I was always the kid that got to go help volunteer. So as I was going to college, I pretty much had decided that I did not want to work with older people. I had had enough enough time in the nursing home and didn't want to do that. And as I went through college and was kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up, um, I started exploring some other options and, you know, really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So when I graduated, I actually worked on a radio station for a while. I sold cosmetics for a while. And then I decided that really wasn't making me very happy. So I moved back to Minnesota. I was in Wisconsin at the time. And I read an ad in the paper for a job. Uh, the job title was activity coordinator, I think, at that time. And one of the requirements was I had to play piano for church. And I thought, well, I can do that. That's not too tough for me. Um, and I started it. It was a very small facility, actually, out on Lake Minnetonka here in um, Minneapolis suburbs. And that was a little over 25 years ago. The memory care piece, um, we had a very, very close family friend that was diagnosed when she was 49 years old, um, really before younger onset uh, Alzheimer's disease was more commonly discussed. And I watched her family sort of go through that process. And her kids were around the same age as I was. And it was just really tough to watch. And what ended up happening was she actually was a resident at a facility that I was working at at the time. She ended up being admitted. 
And, you know, typically on the professional side for caregivers, you know, we know people from the time they come to the facility moving forward. This was the first time I actually had knowledge of the person before. I had known her my entire life, and she still recognized me. We could still have conversations about things that we would do when I was younger with her kids. And it was really that moment of clarity for me that this is really what I need to be what I need to be doing, especially with the music. Um, music is one of those languages that is really quite universal, and I just I fell into working with folks with the disease, and I just never left. Well, that's so that's wonderful. the Reader's Digest version. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. I mean, you can uh, e- even just now I can just hear the passion in your voice in terms of the draw to to this population and the and the people in need. Why don't we start out talking with, um, <clears throat> you know, we always hear people talk about person-centered care. And can you define, you know, your uh, give us your definition, I guess, of person-centered care, and then maybe tell us um, what do we need to do as a as a society and as an as individuals to be able to create that environment. For me, I think person-centered, and and I want to preface this by saying when I was in college and studying music therapy and then working in activities as well, that was a department that was always person-centered because we tended to plan things that were based on what people wanted to do. And so when when person-centered started to become trendy or culture change or all of those phrases that you kind of hear, part of me thought, well, I've been doing that for 20 years. Where have you all been? Um, But I think when it comes into practice, to me, person-centered is truly taking the time to find out what an individual likes, what makes them happy, as well as what they don't like. Um, I often talk to people about, you know, if if your family member has never been somebody to be a joiner, for example, you know, never was very active in community groups and things like that, they're not going to do it now, you know, just because you think they should go to every activity or be very socially active, you're not going to change who they are inherently. And, And I think really taking the time to find out what's truly important to people because those things never change with or without dementia. Those values, those desires, those passions never really go away. I think the challenge comes especially in a facility setting, whether that's assisted living or long-term care, I don't know that it particularly makes a difference, is getting staff, getting family members to take the time to maintain those things because as the disease progresses, and I'm sure you know, you have to make modifications and adapt to be able to continue to do those some, do some of those things. But I think when you take the time to really maintain that level of engagement with people, they will always respond to that. And I think it's a real shame when, you know, a place talks about being person-centered and yet they don't take time to make sure that, the lady that always went to church every Sunday, she doesn't get to church because they don't have enough staff or they don't have enough whatever because it, then then you're not being person-centered. If it's important to the person, you make it work. It's not about being convenient. 
because person-centered is very, very inconvenient. Yet if you don't do that, that's when you start to have problems with folks that have difficulty communicating and they start to exhibit behavioral symptoms a lot of times when you're not focusing really on who they are or you're trying to get them to do something without giving any credit to the fact that they may not want to do it. Exactly. I, I think it was really important because a lot of times, you know, you had talked about what they like and what they don't like, and a lot of times people focus on what they like, and a lot of times they focus on what they used to like, and we have to also be intuitive enough to see that things may change over time with this disease, and want, something that they once loved might not fit with where, are, where they are anymore because, because of these changes. Or maybe they just need to be done differently. And, you know, like a big birthday party and a gathering might need to be broken down to smaller little gatherings so that they're comfortable in place. So um, I, I think that was a really good point. Or, you know, you're not going to switch their, their personality style. I, I hear all the time from people saying, you know, it's okay for me to just be quiet and sit still. I'm comfortable and I'm relaxed. That's an okay place to be instead of, you know, just always on schedule and moving and shaking. Um, sometimes that moving and shaking, I think, is more for us thinking that we're doing something for them than it is actually for the person who we're trying to care for. So um, I think and those are really good points. Mm-hmm. And that's a really good point, too, what you said about that there is, there is, I think, a need for people that are taking care of someone with the disease to feel like they're always doing something for that person. And I think sometimes what we need to do is just be with them, and you really, and that's all you have to do. That, to me, sometimes can be focusing on the person. If they're having a day where they don't really want to engage, they don't want to talk, they don't want to interact in any way, sometimes just sitting next to them on the couch and holding their hand or putting your head on their shoulder or vice versa, you know, just to have that physical connection is really all they need. It's not about how many activities they can do in a day or how much, how many books they look at. I mean, it, it's really just about what they need in that moment. Yeah, and I think if we reflect on ourselves of, you know, liking to relax and having that calmness in our life, you know, that that's huge. For most of us, we don't want to be busy 24-7. And so being able to just kind of breathe and relax or sit quietly next to somebody, you know, when you're, when you're personally feeling out of sorts, you know, what is it that calms you down and makes you feel comfortable? And, um, and realizing that that could easily help the person that you're with. And yep. I think being able to bring that sense of calm, sometimes we get so wrapped up, um, like you said, in the activities of being busy, and that can be overwhelming with all the, the stimulation because, again, things have changed <clears throat> in terms of their life. Well, and I often talk to people, too, about, you know, when you mention overstimulation, you know, for people to ask themselves, how do they respond in a crowd or where there's a lot of people or a lot of stimulation? You know, here in Minnesota, a lot of us every fall go to the state fair and spend some quality time with about 100,000 of our close friends. (laughs) And some people love that sort of thing. You know, they love walking down the street shoulder to shoulder with somebody else. And some people would rather be at the dentist without Novocaine 
because they can't handle that degree of stimulation. And I think for people with the disease, you have to think about that, but you bring it down to a much smaller scale. You know, just because somebody, and you alluded to it with, like, birthday parties, you know, maybe you had the great big parties before, but that amount of stimulus, can't, they can't handle that anymore. And so to focus on their particular need as they progress through the disease, again, when you really talk about person-centered, you are constantly aware that that person is changing, and it may be day-to-day, it may be hour-to-hour, and they may go back to baseline for a day or two, and then it may change again. And there's that constant flexibility of whoever the caregiver is to make sure they're reading all of that nonverbal communication and making those adaptations as the person with the disease needs. That is really, to me, what is person-centered. It's not, you know, we write care plans or we do treatment plans or whatever people are comfortable calling it, but it's a fluid piece of paper. It never stays the same. And so you have to be very, very flexible. And I think sometimes, especially for the family caregiver, they so want to have that structure because that's the way they need to survive you know, to know exactly what they're going to do in a given day, yet the person with the disease doesn't always have the same structure or it may change. So as much as you want to be structured, you still have to be able to take that step back and focus on the individual and be able to be flexible to maintain that focus on them. I I think that's really important. And and the word flexibility, I mean, if you think of person-centered care, think of two words, flexibility and spontaneous (laughs) Yeah, and, that, would, and it, that works. And it's really not about <clears throat> control and structure. Person-centered care, you know, has to ebb and flow. And one of the things that I know I found personally for myself was that I liked the structure and the control. I liked doing the tasks. I liked checking them off my list because it made me feel like I was in control, like I was making a difference. Um, that that everything would, would be okay if I just did these things. And bottom line is, you know, things can be okay, but they're never going to be the way they were. And once I let go of my need to have control, when I let go of my ego and stopped making this about me, which I never thought when I was in the process I was, I, I always thought I was very person-centered because everything I was doing, I thought I was doing for them. Until Mm -hmm. I sat back and said, you know what, some of the stuff, I mean, they really don't care if they get their pills at 3 or at 4, you know, unless it was a pain medication. Um, And I'm putting all this pressure on to meet all these deadlines. And they're very um, flexible many times. You know, routine is important, I think, for them. But we we have to look at what routines and who are they important to and what's driving us. As, as care partners, because once I sat back and could let go of my control, thinking that it has to be done now and it has to be done this way, oh, my gosh, I had so much more control because I wasn't forcing things, and things went so much easier because I became flexible. And so the dance of care was just, it was fun. It was much more fun. It wasn't um, it wasn't nearly the burden that it was when I was playing sergeant and, um, you know, Little Miss Fix-It. And so that was a huge revelation for me. It was like, whoa, what took me so long to figure this out, you know? Well, um, and I think on the professional side, you know, working in 
in the land of healthcare facilities for a number of years, that that is a big challenge that they have because they're very focused on task and getting things done within a certain time parameter or else. And I truly believe that if you take the time to meet those individual needs as they come up, it keeps the world a much calmer place and you end up actually having more time to do the tasks as well as more time to engage with the people with the disease. You know, sometimes I would have a pile of paper on my desk and it's still going to be there in 10 minutes. So I could go paint somebody's fingernails or take them for a little walk or, you know, whatever it is that they need at that particular point in time. It's all about them. It's not all about me. I still have to get my work done, but that's not their problem. You know, I'm I'm there for them. I'm there to do what they need today. And at those times when they don't need anything right this minute, that's when I do my work. For me, spending time with residents when I was in long-term care, that was never work. Mm-hmm. That was pure enjoyment. And I think that's the one thing that I do miss from time to time. Um, obviously, working for the Alzheimer's Association has been a great experience, but I I do miss the folks that would come into my office and take candy from my candy jar or clean off my desk or whatever it was because you just you don't have those opportunities. Yeah. Now, I have a question for you. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you had mentioned in care facilities, you know, they're very task-oriented and they have to be. And, and part of, you know, what I hear all the time from, from staff is, well, you know, we have to do it this way and we have to chart it. And one of the things I, I am a big advocate for is changing the way people chart and what they chart. And if, if something can't be done um, in a time frame, making sure that it's charted, not just that it didn't get done, but why it didn't get done and what the benefit of not doing it at that time was. Um, mm-hmm. Because it needs to be shared with other staff. It needs to be shared, I think, with family. And I think it needs to be shared with the surveyors so that what they're looking for in terms of quality assurance and quality of life when they're going through that chart Hopefully some of that changes their mindset as well in terms of being flexible and more understanding in terms of how they're grading, um, you know, when they're out there doing their surveys. What what are your thoughts regarding that? Yeah, you know, charting charting is one of those things where for a long time or documentation has been, you know, there's a lot of words like inappropriate or inability to or unable to and I used to really try to write about positive interactions and write about what actually was happening. Um, Inappropriate to me is a word that should never really be used because that is so subjective and so open to interpretation. You know, you might think it's inappropriate, but to the individual, not so much. Um, And there's a whole ton of examples, but we don't have to go there. but the other piece in, in talking about, you know, thinking about different ways to do things, the idea, for example, of this, you know, people in facilities have to have a bath at least once a week or whatever the process is. Well, there are some folks, particularly of the older generation today, that maybe never took a shower. And if they did take a bath, it wasn't in the kinds of tubs that you would see in most facilities. It was probably a large metal tub in the kitchen and depending on where they were 
in the birth order, that would depend on when they got to get in the tub. It was the same water, you know, that everybody would use over and over again. And I think for some folks, you know, they get really kind of freaked out in certain settings. And I've actually made recommendations on a couple of occasions that, you know, do a sponge bath or give the individual a washcloth and some soap and let them clean up that way. There's no rule that says they must be submerged in water. And what happens sometimes, if you start to think about those things a little bit differently, there's always the phrase, there's always more than one way to skin a cat. And there's always different ways to do things to still get the job done. And the challenge, I think, in facilities is that they think that those things take more time. When, in fact, if they would do something that's less stressful, it actually takes less time. So then instead of charting about behavioral symptoms and all these other things, you're able to chart about successful experiences and how well an individual did on a particular day instead of being so negative. Because that patient record, to me, is often very, very negative. Care plans can be very, very negative. And I really strive to make them positive. I would share with families what what an individual was able to do on a particular day that maybe they hadn't been able to do for a while. You know, maybe it was a really good day for whatever reason. And to try to capture those things when you can. Because if you don't, you're going to miss them. And the families don't always see them either. So it was always important for me to communicate those kinds of things with families. And sometimes I'd even call them. You know, I just wanted to let you know what happened today. It was really cool. And, you know, the family members, I think, were grateful to hear those kinds of things instead of your mom fell or your mom is sick or all those things that in some cases are probably inevitable. But we never call about the good things. And, and I think that's, that's important. so important. I know, you know, my mom's been in a nursing home for 11 years, and I have, a, I have a great, great rapport with everybody there. She's like family over there. But, you know, one of the things <clears throat> that I noticed was, you know, it is, you know, that is what they, how they communicate it. It's a pill didn't get um, taken on time or there's a bed sore or she's got an ingrown toenail or, you know, all those things or there's a bruise. Those are things that I, you know, are, are nice to know, and I appreciate that. But as a daughter, what I want to hear is, you made my mom smile, mm-hmm. or she la- she was laughing, or she was engaging, and those are the things that we need to focus on. And, and as a society, we are so fear focused, and we are so negative. Um, and when we really break down. I always tell people we typically remember three things, what scares us, what saddens us, and what makes us happy. So as time is limited um, and and gets tighter with a person with any chronic illness and dementia being one of those, what do you want to focus on? Do you want to focus on what scares you? Do you want to focus on what, you know, um, uh, saddens you? Or do you want to focus on joyful things? And, you know, and then don't be greedy. Don't hold those to yourself. Share them with others so that people can recreate those moments. They can figure out what those triggers are. And it it just helps guide people, and it really reduces that fear. I I see that so often with families. I didn't know know that, you know, my dad could interact. I've never gotten that from him because he didn't know, they don't know how. And so maybe it's singing a song or playing some music or telling a joke or, having a conversation down this line, you know, share those things. Those are those are empowering for everybody, and they're just such a gift um, to well, be able to. No, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. 
I was just going to say that those, that's a gift to be able to have. So, Well, and sometimes those triggers happen very accidentally. You know, I think sometimes family members, and, and maybe you could help me understand this, I don't know if it's family members don't remember a lot of the little things or they forget to share a lot of the little things, but I've had experiences over the years, one that comes into my head in in such clarity of a lady that I took care of who lived to be 105, and I would call her pleasantly confused. She was someone um, with dementia. I don't know that it was Alzheimer's type. I don't know that they ever did any autopsy. But she clearly had some um, interesting behaviors. She was very good at hacking, and she was very good at hiding things. And sometimes she would remember her daughter, sometimes she wouldn't, you know. But one of the things that we discovered very much by accident, I play the piano when I would sit in a little kind of community space, and I would play, and she would come up and sit next to me on the bench. And some of the staff would, you know, oh, she needs to sit in a chair, she needs to sit in a chair. It's like, no, we both fit. You know, it's okay. And she certainly wasn't doing anything to me. And one particular day... There's a song that was written, I want to say back in about 1917, called Till We Meet Again, that was a World War One, post-World War One song. And out of the blue, this lady started to sing. And I'd never heard her sing. Mm-hmm. And I'd probably been there two or three years at this time. And she knew every word. The song has, um, it's, it's fairly long. And she sang the entire song. And I thought, well, that's kind of strange, in a good way. You know, but I had never heard her do that, and so I asked her daughter, I said, are you aware that, you know, do you know that your mom likes to sing? And she started thinking about it and then kind of went back a little bit that, you know, when she was, she remembered hearing stories about when she was young that they would sing at school, you know, a little choir. And, and up until three weeks before this lady passed away, I after I left the position, I actually still went to visit her. She didn't know my name. I had no relationship to her other than the fact that I worked there for six years. She always knew that I played the piano. And I would go see her, and she would take my hand and walk me over to the piano. And we'd have to sit. And had that situation, that incident not happened the way that it did, I don't know that her daughter ever would have mentioned that. Because I don't know that her daughter ever saw it. It was really when her mom was a little girl because when they were when her mom was older they had a business her first husband had been killed in an accident and remarried and relocated and all those things that you know happened at the time and it was a part of her life that she never really explored after that until that one day that one particular song just triggered and then it started a relationship where she you know every time she saw me from the time that I, when I was still there as well as when I would come back and visit. And like I said, other than the fact that I worked there, I mean, I didn't see her 24-7, but these connections that that develop and Mm -hmm. the things sometimes I think that families families don't think about or don't, maybe they don't know, you know, or maybe you have to have the trigger. But I, I used to ask families lots and lots of questions when somebody would come to the knew would come to the facility or was going to be admitted, I would ask a lot of questions that were never on, you know, the assessment. 
assessments are only good if you use the information. And a lot of people, I think, ask a lot of questions and never look at it again. I always wanted to know, what what is it that this person finds important? Tell me about what they did when they were a little kid. Do you you know do you have any examples of things that they used to do, or were there any things? For example, sometimes people would start recalling tragic things that happened. Those are helpful to know before <laughs> it occurs. Oh, definitely, <laughs> you want to avoid those. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and but sometimes you you inadvertently trigger something, and there's a reaction. I can remember, for example, when 9/11 happened, and the staff where I was working had every single television on the news channel. And, you know, we're watching this as it happens, and I certainly understand from the staff member member side, but then there was a gentleman in the room who started talking, initially we thought kind of incoherently, but then started talking about Pearl Harbor. And the smoke plumes and those kinds of images for him triggered something very differently and I told the staff turn you have to turn everything off. Said they can't you can't have this on. Well we want to know what's going on. We'll go out in the lobby. You can't and we turned off all the televisions, we unplugged them all because that became a very negative image for a lot of people. It brought them back to December seventh, nineteen forty one in about a minute. And the staff today don't think about that. That it's not they're not in real time. A lot of oh, times. And it's huge. I remember, um, I want to bring up a couple of points. One, I'll get back to your question of maybe helping you understand, you know, where family are coming from and why they, they don't remember some things. But I remember um, with my mom at the nursing home when we first went in and bombed um, Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm. And she was she was calm, and the TV was on in her room, and I was weeding out her client her closet, and all of a sudden, she just got so frightened and so scared and started crying, and I did not connect it with the with the TV. I thought it was because I was saying, "Do you want this or not?" We were weeding through her closet, you know, and then sure. all of a sudden it hit me. It's like she is terrified that that is happening outside her door right now, yep. and so. As soon as I turned that TV off, it was amazing, the difference. She calmed right down, and we were able to focus on the closet. So, you know, really those triggers are so, so important. Um, Getting back to your question of, you know, why families don't connect the dots, I think part of it is, I think there's several reasons, but I think part of it is, one, many just think what was is gone. And there's just no hope. So many families are just destitute. And even if they come in looking like they got it all pulled together, inside they are just a crumbled cookie, um, trying to trying to appear like everything is okay and that they're strong. Um, and two, I think some families um, might not know a lot of the history because not everybody chats about what they did when they were younger. Or mm-hmm. it was once disclosed to them, and it wasn't that important at the time. And so I think as staff and as friends and as trainers, we have to help people trigger um, what was told to them because we store all that stuff. It's just recalling it. 
um, and trying to figure out, and maybe maybe for family, they need to go sit down and look through some family albums and go, oh, yeah, I remember this. And when they remember that, you know, I mean, bring the picture in and maybe they can have a discussion with their family member. Um, or music. A lot of times, you know, people were very, very active with with music and in the radio because there wasn't TV. You know, they gathered yeah. around the radio and they listened intently. <clears throat> because our world has changed so much, people forget about how important some of those things were. You know, when a radio sh- show came on, <clears throat> excuse me, people gathered their chairs around the radio and just, you know, looked at the radio and listened intently. Um, if it was music or if it was news or if it was some type of storytelling program, um, and those those were really big, big moments for them because, you know, to them, that's like when we got the color TV and everyone was amazed at that, you know, yeah. <laughs> or when, the, when the Internet came out. Those are big, big moments. And because they're not big, big moments for us, you know, we tend to poo-poo them. And so, again, it, it's getting back to being person-centered. What was in their life those big, big moments? Um that that really brought them joy. And sometimes, you know, when you're raising kids, you let your your fun things go aside because you're focused on raising your family, and and that might be all the family is seeing. And they didn't see some of the joys because the parents gave those up in order to care for the kids. Um, and I think or, for a lot of us, mm-hmm. for a lot of us too, we have to revisit our own history. You know, I know I would have conversations sometimes with residents because I'm, I'm a little older than some of the 20-something staff that I used to work with. And what I learned in history class in high school is very different than what they teach today. You know, World War One, World War Two are almost non-existent. You know, they mention it maybe in a chapter. There's not a lot of in-depth discussion. So when we would get the World War Two veteran on the unit, and, you know, I would always want to know what branch of the military were you in, what was your rank, where were you stationed, because those were things that typically they would be able to remember. And the staff would look at me like, where was that? When mm-hmm. did that happen? You know, and I think for some of us, you have to go back and you got to, you have to relive or relearn some of our own history to be able to engage in those kinds of conversations, or if the person is able to, let them tell you the story yep. and let them teach you the story because sometimes their information is way better than the history book anyway. Oh, definitely. Definitely. You can hear hear the inside track. Um, I totally, totally agree with that. <clears throat> what do you think are, are some other barriers to for people to be person-centered? Um, both staff and family. I think for staff, the biggest barrier they're going to tell you is time. And I don't believe it. I I had a conversation as recently as yesterday with someone and said, you know, if the staff tell you that they don't have time, you need to push back. You need to not be afraid to say, well, we need to figure out how to make this work because it's important to my mom, it's important to my dad that they get to do A, B, C, or D, whatever it is. Um and I will go sometimes even with friends who have got family members in facilities, and I'll do the pushing. It's like there's there are so many people visibly present 
you know, it doesn't have to be a nursing assistant. It doesn't have to be a nurse. There's there's other people around that can help to ensure that those things that are really important to folks actually happen. I think for families, I think it kind of depends. I think for families where the, the family members are younger, you know, maybe if it's somebody that was diagnosed that has younger onset, you know, they could also be taking care of small children. And I think for those folks it becomes a really difficult juggling act to try to, to figure out how to take the time to spend with the person with the disease and do the things that make them happy or communicate to staff the things that make them happy and yet still maintain a functioning home for their children. And I think when it's an older person, I think sometimes the older person doesn't, I don't know, it's been my experience, especially when it's a spousal situation, that oftentimes the spouse that is the caregiver, I think, tries to keep a lot of that internalized. And I think you you said it very well um, in kind of answering the question, that assumption of what was is gone. And, And they're afraid, I think, to go back sometimes. You know, they don't want to talk about the past because they feel like there is no past. They've lost that person already, and I think sometimes it's people being able to sit down and engage with the family to say, you know what, yes, there are certainly changes, and and I think that an understanding of that and an understanding from when you're spending time with family to to acknowledge that and to support that, but at the same time to be able to say, we want to see if we can reconnect in any way, and anything you can tell us about what what really made them happy, it's going to help us be able to do that, to focus on things that they're going to enjoy doing or that they would at least engage. You know, sometimes I actually had somebody, I did a presentation at a large corporation a couple of weeks ago, and I had um, somebody that was at the presentation say to me, well, it's not like you're going to know if the person that has dementia likes something or not, you know, or is getting any benefit from it or not. And I really struggled with the comment because it really made me angry. And I said, you know what? I said, sometimes it's just for that brief moment the person will look at you and they won't be distracted or they might take your hand or they might smile just a little bit. It's not a huge you know, oh, thank you very much, that was wonderful sometimes. It's those little, little teeny things that kind of tell you, you know what, you got in. Yeah. There was that little bit of a connection. And I think sometimes families have to learn that. They're not going to get this big response necessarily, mm-hmm. but what are they going to get? You know, can they smile? And then I would always try, I frequently would have my phone with me, not to be on the phone, but to take pictures. Mm -hmm. And when those moments would happen, because you never knew when they were going to happen usually, and and you you might have a couple of minutes, and then I would send families, you know, I would send it in an email. Thought you might like to see this. Um, Because every once in a while, you know, you had those little little moments where it was like, oh, my gosh, I wish the family would be here. And then suddenly that technology piece, it's like, you know what, I can make that happen. It and so we would, do that. Yeah. we would do that a lot. 
Yeah, I think, you know, some uh, some care facilities and communities get a little paranoid, I think, you know, because of the HIPAA regulations and stuff and where will the picture go and, you know, and, and HIPAA is good and I understand it has to be there, but, you know, my gosh, we are missing out. We are, we've gotten to be such a paranoid society that we we really forget to look for the joy and when you you know when you mentioned you know those little things like a smile or the glint in the eye <clears throat> that's all I get from my mom now she's in her end stages she doesn't talk much if she can say three words and string them together that makes sense I mean we're having a fabulous day and if she just says aha um, and it's an appropriate comment that's a big thing that's that's that connection and I can honestly say that fills my heart so much more than um, maybe a conversation we used to have that didn't have as much meaning. You know, we're Mm -hmm. talking about the weather or whatever. And we are so used to just having those general conversations and actually thinking about either, you know, what the person is saying or how we're going to respond to whatever they're saying you know, or how am I going to get out of here? You know, <laughs> the clock is ticking. Yep. I've got lots of things to do. We're always focused on the future. And this disease, I, I personally believe, was was destined to get us all back to basics of learning to connect and appreciate the small little things that we have forgotten. You know, the smell the ro- You know, stop and smell the roses. This is what this disease can give you if you allow it in. And it can make your life so much more joyful. Even in, you know, even though you're losing things, it makes you A, appreciate what it was you had, what it what it is you want in the future. And and you just you just have a deeper connection. Um I, I can't even explain it. It's 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 almost euphoric at times when when the connection is so strong, and there doesn't need to be words. And, you know, if you think of someone who you really um, love, and maybe it's your first love, <clears throat> and and they just have to walk in the room, and you you change. You know, every yep. cell in your body changes, and you're just happier because that person is in your life. Or maybe it's just when you think about them. You know, you you are just in a happier place, and and someone with dementia can give you that gift of connecting at that level if you're willing to just and slow think, down. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's exactly it. It's it's slowing down. It's taking the time to take the time, mm-hmm. and and to realize that if you if you do that. And when you do that, it's going to make the whole process really a lot easier. You know, they I think there is a realization, even with someone in the advanced stages of the disease, that when somebody spends time with them, they understand that. Yep. You know, you're sitting here with me and there's nobody else in the room. You know, you're holding my hand, you're putting lotion on my hand. Whatever it is that you're doing, you're reading to me. I, I think there is a raw awareness there that they understand and appreciate that interaction. And I think that's huge. I think when I would hear staff, you know, talk about, well, so-and-so doesn't like it when I take her to the bathroom, but when the other person does it, it's fine. It's like, okay, why is that? Yep. 
it's not just because you're wearing blue and she's wearing green. What What is different about those interactions? And nine times out of ten, it's the approach. It's how that interaction is started, the, the level of compassion, how slow, you know, because they don't like to be rushed. Mm-hmm. And you, when you take the time to take the time, suddenly that interaction is completely different. And you're still able to get the task done, but then you're not upsetting the apple cart as you do it. Yep. Well, and I think that, it's so critical. Yep. And that don't being rushed, you know, everybody thinks, I shouldn't say everybody, but I'll say 98% of the population thinks Alzheimer's patients and dementia patients are different than us, dramatically different. And they're not. You know, I I have this very strong belief, um, and for me it has worked that that we process things exactly the same way, and and everything has to do with you know our circumstances and our conditions, you know, cause our beliefs, and you know none of us like to be rushed. I don't know of one person in the world who wants to be rushed through whatever it is they're doing. You know, we we all have our own pace. And we like to be in our own zone. And a person with dementia is no different. And so one of the things that I always teach in training is that, that it's our current attitude plus our history create our perceptions. And our perceptions, in return, create our reactions. And our reactions yep. are perceived as behaviors or inappropriate when it doesn't align with the other guy's to-do list and yep. what their belief system is. But really, you know, it's just a reaction. And if you can get past it being a good or bad thing and just realizing it can be changed if you go in to, in reverse and back it up and go, you know, what is their history? You know, what is causing that trigger? Were they in the war and, you know, a bomb going off or a car backing, um, uh, backfiring um, mm-hmm. scares them and causes that reaction. And what is their attitude? And knowing that our attitude affects their attitude. So if we come in fast-paced and rushed and rude and, and short, they're going to pick up on that. They're going to give that back to us. But if we come in with a smile on our face and, you know, work at their pace and, you know, kind of dance with them, and through this process, it's going to be very different. We have much more control at changing the outcomes than we give ourselves credit for. We just don't take the time to look for the signals. Well, or even taking the time to look at a potential trigger. You know, I would talk to staff a lot about the whole issue of bathing because bathing is, for a lot of people, very, very difficult. And it's like, you know, put yourself in their situation. Some strange person comes into the room and tells you, maybe, that you're going to get a shower. You know, they take you into the shower room, they take your clothes off, and they hose you down with, you know, because typically it's not a shower head like you or I might have in the bathroom. It's on a long hose. And we are somehow surprised by the fact that the individual receiving this little process gets angry mm-hmm. and gets upset or is afraid. And oh, definitely. And it could I be just, simple things, too, like testing the water. Do they like a hot mm-hmm. shower or a cold shower? 
What temperature? Do, I mean, that's huge. Don't we all stick our hand in and go, okay, it's okay to jump in now, but we don't do that a lot of times with our with our clients or our family members. You know, we just turn it on and it's we got to get this done. You know, so yep. get in there. And so little teeny things like that. Um, you know, covering them up because sometimes, you know, you're cold when you get out of the shower depending on the environment and a lot of times their blood flow changes, you know, as we age and so a lot of people are colder than what we are and we have to appreciate doing those little things. Um, Well, not only covering them up, putting something warm on them. Mm -hmm. At one place I worked, you know, we had blanket warmers and we would get warm blankets. And it's amazing what that sensation does to people. Instant relaxing. Yep. You know, and you wrap them up in a blanket and they feel like they're protected and they're warm and then it's much easier to have those interactions and to get those things done that you need to get done. Oh, definitely. That's um, that's a very, very good point. Um, we've talked, you know, a little bit about kind of what family and friends can do to kind of create a more person-centered um, environment. Um, and we focused more on what we can do um, as, I guess, care partners. Do you do you have any physical, like, rearrangement ideas as far as rooms and clutter or organization um, that might help um, both, both family and staff? Because I think one of the things is that we think family and staff are so different. And to me, yeah, one, not. Of the, <laughs> one of the goals should be staff should be like family, you know. Yep. Um, and and so I, I think sometimes we, again, we think we're different and we really shouldn't be because it's a matter of being comfortable and, and feeling accepted and cared for. You know, I think in terms of environment, always always keeping in mind safety, you know, especially if people are using walkers or maybe they've had some difficulty with mobility. But I think you want to have an environment that is familiar you know, one of the challenges I have with um, some of the memory care environments that are being built is they're being built in a very contemporary way. They they look like a place I might want to live someday, but certainly mm-hmm. not a place where I would have my mom. Um, it's not an environment that she would appreciate at all. You know, I used to tell families, if there's a space on the wall, hang it. You know, if there's if your mom had you know, did embroidery or did whatever, and there's all these things that that are from the house that are familiar. You bring it all, and you put it all on the wall, and I don't care if there's a hole in the wall. It's important to that individual. I mean, I worked at a facility that where the, I was originally told that folks could not hang anything on their walls. <laughs> I thought, are you joking? Oh, you know, yeah. and and I said... They had like little um, little hanger things, like a shelf with little pegs, and that was the only place they could hang things. And I thought, yeah, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. You know, and old pictures. You know, I always I would get frustrated when you know it's fine if you want to take a current picture for like a medication book or something, but if you're going to hang a picture in someone's room, hang their wedding picture, hang their high school graduation picture, or if they went to nursing college or if they went to whatever or if they drove a tractor, hang those things that then can initiate conversation with staff and that individual. Um, I used to tell families to label things. 
put the names of who the people are in the picture um, so that you could say, if I walked in the room, you know, I could say, oh, this is your Aunt Mabel and your Uncle Harold. And then they'd look at me like, oh, gosh, how do you know that? And then I would say, well, it's just because I'm really smart, but it also says <laughs> it right here. <laughs> you know, and but it, it was those kinds of things that, that helped engage. Um, particularly with ladies, I would ask their families, you know, did they wear perfume or with lotion? What kind of fragrance? Like lemon verbena is one that pops in my head that was a very common fragrance for older ladies. The staff hated it. I said, I don't care. This is what they like and this is what we're going to use because it's a familiar smell to them. Um, Women, oh, I'm trying to think. Like um, we used to have folks bring in different pajamas that were familiar, you know, instead of wearing the hospital gown kinds of things. And the staff used to hate that. And it's like, you know what? Would you like it if I made you sleep in this? Well, no, it's open in the back. Well, okay, then we're not going to do it. Um, It was always interesting when we would have a gentleman that would only want to sleep in his underwear. You know, oh, my gosh, he's walking around in his underwear. Well, why is that a problem? He's not naked. Yep. You know, he's covered, and this is what makes him comfortable. And so any anything like that in the environment, we also used to encourage people that if they wanted to hang something, I had one lady who had a beautiful picture that used to be in her kitchen, and she wanted to hang it in the dining room. I said, all right, let's go figure out where we're going to put it. And it was a big, it wasn't a little picture, it was a big picture. I thought I was going to get fired. (laughs) Like, you know what? It makes her happy to feel like this is her space. Her home, yep. So let her hang the, uh, it doesn't bother me. Yeah, it's it's so important, and it's it's those little things about, you know, and again, um, communities and organizations have to, be what they preach. You know, they they talk about flexibility. Well, that has to get down to the maintenance guys too, you know, yep. because they're the ones that have to patch the walls, and they need to understand this stuff. And, and maintenance and food service, and they are just filled with such great information about your people, and sometimes they're not tapped because they're looked at as, well, you know, they just they just do maintenance. But they're in the building. They are part of it. They're the fix-it man. And people, especially who have early onset, um, you know, so I've, I've been in some places where some of the guys will kind of hang out with them. And, oh, yeah. You know, kind of walk and do the light bulb check. And, you know, they have tasks to do because it gives them purpose. So, again, it, it, it gets back to what makes them feel, you know, safe, happy, and comfortable. Uh, and and a lot of these things aren't a big deal to work with. It's just changing the rules. It's it's just becoming flexible and understanding the importance of the quality of life is not, and, and I don't think should be set in a rigid rule. You know, because it, it's not going to meet all our needs. I mean, what are they going to do when when people our age, you know, who you know, I, I'll use the example of the guy in his underwear. Well, there's a lot of people that sleep nude, too. What are they going to yep. do when that crew comes of age you know, and starts dealing with this stuff? I mean, there's we have to be age-appropriate, and, and I do agree with you. A lot of communities 
are selling to the kids and not necessarily um, selling features that really meet the population's needs. And not, not everybody, don't get me wrong there, but I think a lot of times, and I've seen it over and over and over again, where the pitch is really, it's, it's big, it's beautiful, it's fancy. So, you know, get all caught up in that and don't worry about, you know, what services we really have because it looks good. And Well, I think, too, and you mentioned the word purpose. Mm-hmm. I think for so many people, that's the one thing that we forget about if they have dementia, mm-hmm. that they still want to have a sense of purpose. And a lot of being person-centered is finding out how they can still have that have that feeling, feel as though they are giving back to whatever degree they're able to do that. Um, I joked earlier that, you know, I there were a couple of ladies in my history that used to be in charge of cleaning my desk, whether it needed it or not. And, you know, I could have gotten very upset about that and you're messing up all of my papers and, you know, and I would just get up and leave and go do something else for a while and they would straighten out all the piles even if there weren't piles, they'd make piles. I mean, it, for them, it was that they were doing something for me. Mm-hmm. And I would thank them very much, and then I would fix it later. Or, you know, sometimes those individuals would be having a really, really bad day. And it's like, you know what, I would really like it if you would come and sit with me. And they maybe don't have to do anything else but sit there. Simultaneously, they're not alone. We talk a little bit from time to time, maybe, or I talk, you know, depends. But it's that idea that they feel like they're still contributing to something or contributing to someone. And I think a lot of times we get real hung up on, well, gosh, it says they're not supposed to do this in the regulations or they can't. It's like, you know what, (laughs) get over it. Mm -hmm. I think it's important for those folks to feel as though they still have a role to play. You know, some of the some of the ladies that I would work with over the years, you know, had eight, nine, ten children. Those women have been busy their entire lives. They don't know what it's like to rest because they've never done it. Mm-hmm. So we need to give them something to do. You give them those tasks to feel like, okay, I need you to do this for me. And it's not, you don't say, well, do you want to do this? Well, of course not. You know, nobody wants to fold laundry if they don't have to. But if you phrase that in such a way, you know what, I really, really would be very appreciative if you would do this for me. You know, or maybe I'll even help you. And suddenly it changes the dynamic of that whole interaction and they're feeling a part of the community. And again, it goes back to that taking time to take time with people and figure out, okay, what what's going to make them feel better? Because really that's what it's kind of about, I think. You know, you want yeah. them to be comfortable. You want them to be content. You know, we unfortunately we can't fix this, but we can at least do the very best we can to keep a level of comfort and a level of contentment throughout the process. Exactly. And and that contentment, that relaxation, I mean, that's pretty much what we all strive for. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's what we want our lives to be. So why would we want to take that away from someone who is ill? Why would we want to take that away from anyone? So really appreciating that. And and like you said, look inside. What makes you feel purposeful? 
um, what makes this person feel purposeful? When my dad was uh, in the nursing home, he had, he had brain cancer, and at the very end he, he took a spill, and he just wasn't able to live independently anymore. And in the beginning, um, when he was there, he lasted about two months. And in the beginning, when he was still able to walk, even though very, very slow, he took great pride in getting down to the to the dining room and passing out, you know, the bibs for everyone. And I know that they're called clothing protectors. I've had people yell and scream at me, but bottom line, a clothing protector or a bib is the same thing. It's a cover-up. And changing a name doesn't change the way it looks. And yep. um and stuff and so you know if you want to go make it colorful and a little bit different I, personally then I could probably go with clothing protector but to me it's a bib and to most people it's a bib and it shouldn't be necessarily a bad word but he took great pride and he said I have to I have to pass out the bibs people really need these you know he's like because we swap now we're not as neat as we used to be and, yep. and he just you know, and it took him a long time just to pass out on his units, you know, like, I don't know, probably 30 bibs. Probably took him an hour to do that. But he loved feeling like he belonged and that he was helping everyone, you know, that he had purpose. So don't underestimate giving someone purpose with something that you might think is really minute. Because to them, it could mean the world. And it can make make their day much easier getting up out of that chair or out of bed because they have something to do. They have a role. And we all want to fit in. Well, and I think having something to do that they feel is beneficial to others. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and it is the little things. It's tiny little things sometimes. You know, so reorganize my desk. That's fine. You know, I I have other things that I can be really concerned and upset about. You know, I I used to think that I think initially when I started in working with older folks, you know, some of that stuff used to drive me crazy. Um, and I think most professionals, if they didn't admit that, would be lying. Mm-hmm. But I think there comes a point when you start to realize that they're not doing it to drive you crazy. They're doing that to help you. Mm-hmm. They perceive, you know, you talked about the perception. They perceive that you need help. Your your desk is full of paper. That needs to be cleaned up. I can do that for you. And it's breaking those things down into very, very simple thoughts. And it's like, you know what? Yes, you can. I'm going to leave you to it, and I'll be back in a few minutes. Because after all, it's just paper. Or, you know, it, it's not that big of a deal. I was going to share a story when you talk about um, people feeling a sense of purpose, and this was, oh, my gosh, a long time ago. We had a gentleman that was a retired physician, and uh, he was uh, he worked at a major university, um, was very well-known, and had a diagnosis of dementia. And every morning he was walking into other people's rooms, and he would be pulling down the covers, and staff would see him bending over people, but they really couldn't see what he was doing. And it was every single morning. So we started following him because it's like something is, what's going on here? Well, what he was doing was making rounds. 
And when he would pull down the cover, he was trying to get to their wrist so that he could check their pulse. He would lean down to check, you know, because old school, before stethoscopes, they would lean down to listen for the heartbeat and make sure they were still breathing. So he was he was checking on his patients. So we thought, hmm. So we went and got him a lab coat. We got him a stethoscope, and we gave him an empty chart. And all we put in there was blank note paper. But then he could go around, and he could check everybody out, and he took notes. And then he would leave the chart at the desk, and then he would be ready for breakfast. Oh, wonderful. You know, for him, that was purpose. You know, initially the staff were like, what is he doing? But once we started to kind of keep an eye on him, it's like, oh, well, this makes perfect sense. He worked in a hospital. It's before breakfast. That's what they did. So let's give him the tools. He wasn't hurting anybody. Mm -hmm. Just making sure they were still okay. You know, and probably had he ever come across somebody that wasn't, he would have been able to tell us because he would have known that was not right. Uh And for, I bet, a good year and a half, two years, he did that every single morning, seven days a week. Wow. And we just had a special place for his chart and his stuff, and he'd lay his lab coat. We'd hang it up behind the desk. And, I mean, it, it was nothing. We had to figure it out. But once we figured out what he was doing, it was nothing. Yeah, and then and it's yet, nothing to be scared of. It's, it, no. it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. And, and, you know, like we talked earlier, there's always a reason. There's a reason we all do everything. And yep. so many times people look at someone with dementia and go, oh, they're just crazy, they're senile, you know, we, we don't know. It doesn't, you know, well, take the time. Take the time, put your little investigator hat on, take the time and figure it out. Um, because, you know, once you figure out that, you can tie that into conversation. I mean, there's so many things that you could do um, with just knowing that, you know, he was in the medical field, you know, in the past, and this was his routine. I mean, that could change everything. One of the things that that I have found with um, not only family but friends especially, you know, pull back, because uh, they, they just don't know how to interact. And I think, personally, I I would love to see families be more honest with their friends in terms of how things are really going and um, what's working and what's not. Uh, and, and I think still in the U.S. especially, we kind of have this Stepford wife um, thing that we have to <laughs> pretend like life's okay, I got it under control, I don't need any help because... We we here in the U.S. are not very good about receiving help. We like to no. give help, um, but we're not good about letting others help us. And that is something that I think, again, this disease can help break down that barrier because anytime you give, and again, this is my personal philosophy, but anytime you give, you always receive more back. But you're not going to receive it if, A, you're not open to, to receiving it, um, you know, you have to get let go of your paranoia, let go of your um, ego, and realize that there's more than one way to to skin a cat, which isn't easy for all of us, especially if you're like me. I used to be a big control freak, you know, my way or the highway. It's the best. <laughs> I've figured it all out. Well, lo and behold, it wasn't always the best. It was the best that I knew, but. 
you know, it might not be the best for everybody else. And so, you know, letting go um, of of those expectations and, and stop being so fearful. I, I always hear people say, well, I don't know what to say or what to do. Well, what did you do before they got sick? Yeah. Do you, do you treat a person with cancer like that? Do you treat a person with, uh, you know, the chicken pox or whatever? Do you, you know, what 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 makes this disease different that people want to run and hide from it? You know, and again, to me, it's the stigma. You know, this isn't catchy. You know, it's not a viral disease that you're going to get. Um, you know, chances are good that, that most of us are going to end up with it, the way the numbers are, you know, are climbing. And that's not to scare people. That's just to say, do you want to be treated like that? Or are you going to be part of the power to change the way the world gives care? You know, sit down, relax, and breathe, and, and, and just try to interact like you used to. Talk about things that you used to talk about. And, and as the disease progresses, you will progress with them. And I think as the care partner, you know, I I actually have a pretty good friend who is 58 years old and has the disease, and I know, you know, it's a it's a difficult thing to watch, but at the same time, I'm grateful that I can spend time with her because of my profession. I'm also able to be a little more proactive when I'm with her. I try to really be in tune to what she's not telling me mm-hmm. or what she's not saying so that those interactions can be as positive as possible for her and and not react when she's asked me the question for the tenth time because I think some people, you know, get very frustrated with those kinds of things and they start reacting and they start showing that frustration and and I really try very hard to just not even you know, I answer the question again as if it was the first time and we move on to whatever's gonna happen next. So mm-hmm. that she can have those stress free interactions just like when we would interact before she had the disease. Yep. And I think the care partners have to have to learn to think that way because it really will make things a lot easier for them and exactly what you said well what did you do before you know we can still do the same things i'm the one that has to adapt a little bit and and i think that caregivers spouses friends whatever should be able to do that we're not dealing with the disease our goal should be to try to make those experiences as positive as we can because that's something we can do it's a tangible thing that we can do it doesn't cost us any money you know we don't have to go to class we just modify our own behavior and our own responses so that the person with the disease doesn't get stressed. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of folks don't think that way. You know, they, they want it to be the way that it was, and it unfortunately is never going to be the way that it was, but it doesn't mean that it can't be. It just changes. And everything changes. I mean, and nothing yep. in our life stays the same. This just can be a, a little larger step, but that's when anybody mm-hmm. gets a chronic illness. Um, you know, it, it is a big step, but, you know, it calls for us to step up to the plate, too, and to really value our relationships. And when we really, truly value our relationships, um, it, it doesn't, it's not as scary. 
it, it's not as scary. And I know that it, this can be a really difficult thing for people to to understand and accept, but you have the ability to bring so much joy to this person. You know, I really encourage you to to not not be so afraid that you you push that gift aside because your your relationship as good as it was can be even so much better and deeper when you connect because your your expectations are different you know I, people hear me say this all the time on the radio but we always have different people so I'll, I'll say this again too but you know, with my mom um, now, who to most people is just a shell of a body. You know, she doesn't she doesn't interact much. She sleeps a ton. She's been in her end stages for four years, which is incredible. But you know, she gives me so much joy just to get. Uh, you know, if it's a a glint in her eye, a smile, a giggle, um, a word, or a short phrase. Or to hear her say my voice that she has, or say my my name, um, is is an incredible gift. And so she has taught me to really look for the simple pleasures that that I overlooked. You know, as I got to be an adult and I got busy and oh yes, I got important too. You know, I mean, we kind of we kind of get all, all of that. You know, we got so much to do. You know, we're we're an adult. We can't play. We can't slow down. And I say, yes, we can. Uh, you know, my mom has taught me how to play again. I I have a horrible voice as far as I'm concerned, but I will sing with her or to her in front of people. Who would have thought? And you know what? <laughs> Nobody there gives a rat's patootie. They don't care. It's the melody, and they start chiming in. And we're all off key, but we're all smiling and having a good time. And not in a zillion years did I think I would ever be able to do that because I can't sing. I know I can't sing, you know. But it's not about being perfect. This disease is so not about being perfect. It's about accepting people where they're at. Yep. And really appreciating them for who they are, where they are, not why they are. You know, let that go. It just is. And it might sound very New Age and Eckhart Tolle, but you know what? You know, Eckhart and, and Oprah, they're on to something here. And, and Deepak, they're about being in the moment. So, you know, it, it's a very sacred place to be. And it's a very special place that many never, ever you know, chance to go to, and and I just think that that's so sad because it's it's really a wonderful space when you can let go of control, let go of your ego, become flexible and spontaneous, and just truly enjoy being in the presence of somebody else. Well, and that really is the definition of being person-centered when you get right down to it. It's really mm-hmm. being able to do that and focus on the person at whatever point in the disease they are or at whatever kind of day they're having and and being able to make those adaptations so that their day is better than it would have been otherwise. Mhm. It's it's allowing them 
you know, I used to tell staff, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty type A when it comes to organization. I like my calendar. I like my to-do list. I like all of it. I like to think that I know what I'm going to do on a given day. But working with people with Alzheimer's disease or dementia, they are in total control of your universe. You have no say whatsoever in how your day is going to go. They're going to decide, and they're going to decide based on how you interact with them, how you approach them, how you engage them or not. They're going to make the decisions. And you have to be totally flexible with that and kind of go with the flow because they're really the ones that are in control. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And and it's so funny. I mean, I look back and I see people argue. And I, and I see myself used to argue with my mom. Come on, you know. <laughs> and, and, you know, she would just look at me like, Whoa, what do you mean? I'm getting this. This makes perfect sense to me. And I'm like, oh, no, you know. <laughs> and I would try to get her to do something. And it was like it really, A, didn't need to be done or didn't need to be done in that time frame or in that way or at all. You know, but yeah. it was just something that I, I thought needed to be done because it made me feel better. And when you when you are able to take really your needs out of the way, it makes such a huge, huge difference. I do want to um, throw out there if anybody has any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. So feel free to to type in the chat box, or you can call that number, our call in number, which is seven one four. Three six four four seven five seven, and then just push one, and I'll repeat that again: seven one four three six four four seven five seven. Well, I just love talking to you, Debbie, because you just um, <laughs> you just get it. And I mean, I didn't get it for a long time either. You know, I mean, this is not an easy thing to do. And it, it can be really challenging to one's beliefs and one's lifestyle, um, no matter who you are. If you're, you know, a spouse or a child or a friend or a family or staff, um, it, it, it makes us push our boundaries, um, but in a very, very positive way um, because we gain so much insight, not only to that person, but I've learned so much about myself. Oh, oh yeah. I have learned so much about myself. Um and and not all of it's been good. <laughs> you know, but it, but it's been good in a way that it allowed me to change. Like I always thought I was very accepting, you know, of others. And I remember my daughter when I was little, she would say, "Oh, mom, you just want everyone to be like you. You think everyone's life should be like like yours." You know, and it was like, well, no, I don't, but I want better for them. Well, why did I want better for them? If they were happy with that, why did, why, what does it matter? And yeah. so, and, and I look at, you know, dealing with disease and stuff, I think that's kind of the rut a lot of us fall into. We, we have this vision of what is better for them. And so we go through this grieving process with that, and we try to make it better but there's so many different ways to make things better. There's so many different levels of better. And once we let go of our vision and really get into the quality life of that individual and what is really better for them, what might be very different from what is better for us, oh, it's just huge. And it just expands your mind and your heart. 
at the same time of being, you know, so accepting. Yeah, I think that's really true. I really do. So what well, doesn't look like anyone's got any questions here, and I think we've covered a lot of um, a lot of ground. Are there any um, last tips that you want to give people? And then I want to give you an opportunity to kind of talk about the Alzheimer's Association and what um, what you have to offer people to be able to help them through this process as well. But are, are there any, you know, three to five things that stick out um, that you want to tell for staff and for family and friends? Um, keep these things in mind? I think there's. I think I can probably <laughs> narrow it down to one big one, which really is you have to be willing to take the time to really, really get to know the individual with the disease and know everything that you can possibly know about them and be willing to take the time to put that knowledge into practice every day. I think it is about... You know, again, I and I said this before, you know, this isn't something we can fix, but we have the power to be able to really enhance the quality of their their life, whether that's one year or two years or 20 years, and whatever stage of the disease that they're in, we can do things to make every day better. It's never going to be fabulous. But I think that, you know, you think about that, you know, take time to smell the roses and don't miss the little things and and really try to engage in what what that person finds important and focus on those things. Don't focus on what you're going to lose. There's all kinds of stuff you can read about that if somebody really wants to. You know, it's that's an inevitability. Focus on the things that you... That, it will, that will continue to create memories, that will continue to create the stories that you will have to be able to share when that person is no longer here. Don't focus on the things you can't control, I guess would be my advice. Very, And that's very, very good advice. And um, I guess I would add to that, lighten up. You yeah. Know, <laughs> this, this is a serious disease, and I'm not denying that, but um, don't, don't suck your life dry by being so serious that you 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 don't have joy in your life anymore. You know, one of the biggest things everybody says when they're ill is I wish things were back to normal. And they know, most of them understand that things will never be normal again um the way they were, but normal is laughter. Normal is talking and engaging or sitting quietly just at somebody's side and in their presence, not being alone, feeling like belonging. So um, that's that's just huge. It's absolutely huge. Um, Jacqueline just wrote a note in the chat box here um, saying in her support group they have a saying, they no longer live in our world. We must go to their world and live with them. Yep which is great, great advice. Thank you, Jacqueline. Um, Very important. Did you want to tell us um, about the Alzheimer's Association and maybe some resources that people can tap into? Because you guys have a ton of them. Yeah, (laughs) we have lots of resources. Um, You know, there's a couple of things. One thing that we do and how you and I met was through the education and outreach that we do. Um, We do community, family, as well as professional education. Um, we have a program called Care Consultation where people can meet with 
a care consultant, typically who is a social worker, to make a plan. Um, one of the things that um, we are very good at, I think, here in the United States is being reactive, um, but we're not very good all the time at being proactive. And particularly with the fact that we're being able to diagnose a little bit earlier, we want to encourage people to develop a plan. What are you going to do if? What's going to happen if? That you can talk through those things and have some solid resources right in your hands when you need them, not having to wait for something to happen. And then it's like, oh, my gosh, who do I call? Probably the best resource we have is our information helpline. And if I may give the phone number, sure. it's a toll-free number. And it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that number is 1-800-272-3900. And no matter what time of day or night you call, you get a live person. Somebody actually answers the phone and says hello, and you can ask them anything. And it's a really, really wonderful service. And Monday through Friday, those phones are answered here locally at our office in Edina. And then off hours, it goes through our contact center in Chicago, and then we do the follow-up. Um, but it's a great, great resource for families. The other resource that's really good is our website, which is www.alz.org. There are videos people can watch and classes people can take as webinars and resources, fact sheets that people can print out. Um, there is information about things that you didn't even know you'd need information about. Um, so there's just a lot of information that's available on the website as well. Okay. So great. those are some of the, the biggies. Wonderful. And um, if they just go to... Um it could be because we have an international audience that listens um yep. to us if they go to your site can they can they also get to a site in their in their hometown as well Is there typically i know like um for example in the uk the uk has its own version if you will of the alzheimer's association so it would probably be worth um somebody that's outside of the us to just do a search um, on the Internet for Alzheimer's Association, chances are what's local will pull first. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you do that in the United States, you'll get the, the ALZ.org. But I know the U.K. has a big, um, a big. It's, I don't think it's called the Alzheimer's Association, um, but there are resources internationally as well. In fact, in about a week, um, there's actually an international conference that's going to be have, happening in Vancouver, British Columbia, and there's people that um, attend that conference from all over the world. And if you go to our website, you can actually get information about that and see links to people who are coming from other parts of the world and their contact information, as well as other international organizations for information about the disease. Wonderful. But if someone is in the U.S., they could they could go to your site and get to another state. Yep, ALZ.org, and then they'll see a little map of the United States, and they can click on their state. But that 1-800 number that I gave you mm -hmm. is the same number in all 50 states. Okay, that's what so I was wondering. You, I thought it was, but I wasn't sure. Yep. So that's, okay. that's kind of nice, too. So whatever state you would happen to be in, you can dial that same 1-800 number, and it will connect you to the local 
your local chapters. So if you're in St. Louis or in Chicago or Orlando, um, it's going to connect you immediately to your local chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. Okay. Now that's a smartphone. <laughs> it's a very smartphone, way smarter than my smartphone. <laughs> okay. Well, good. Well, I uh, I so appreciate all the time that you took with us today. I, I just thought it was a great conversation, and um, hopefully our listeners did as well. We have um, some shows coming up here, and on the 17th, uh, Rick Phelps is going to be with us, and again, he's the founder of Memory People on Facebook, but we're going to talk about some life-changing videos that he's putting out to kind of help people understand what it's like to live um, with this disease. And then on the 18th, I'm going to have Pam Rockholtz with us, and she is a spouse whose husband got diagnosed. And so she's really going to talk about, you know, dementia from a from a spouse's perspective. What What is it really like to live with someone with dementia and what kind of changes um, has she had to adapt to and, um, you know, what might make it easier for someone in her shoes as well out there struggling with it. And then on the 23rd, I'll have uh, Tori Zellick. We're going to be talking about a medical day planner and just some ideas for dementia and how to kind of manage things. And then on the 23rd, um, oh, I'm sorry, on the 23rd is when uh, Tori's going to be here. On August 1st, Bill Lightfoot is going to uh, be with us. And we're going to talk about the dynamics of elder abuse, which is really kind of a broad range, but, you know, people with dementia can be just prime targets for this as well. And so we want to definitely um, discuss that. So, Again, I want to thank you so much, Debbie, for all the great information that you shared with us here on Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. And I look uh, I look forward to talking to you again soon. And for our audience, I really appreciate you all tuning in today. And please feel free to share this link, like us, retweet us, um, you know, but pass it along. Again, it's all about collaboration, and Alzheimer's Speaks is really a grassroots effort. Um, just looking, you know, to spread the word. To, to help this uh, journey be a little bit easier for those going down this path. So thank you again, and we will talk soon. Bye now. Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors, from fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond. I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith, It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me. Listen now. Search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform.